Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host Kayla Fratt and I run Canine Conservationists where I train dogs to detect data. Today I have the, the joy of talking to Dr. Erim Gomez about amphibians, diversity, and academia. Erim is a faculty in the wildlife biology program at the, in the Department of Ecosystems and Conservation Science at University of Montana. He is a first-generation college graduate and proud of his parents' farm working and immigrant roots. He's devoted to encouraging students from underrepresented groups to pursue higher education, especially in the sciences. He specializes in studying amphibians, but as you'll hear, he's really passionate about all sorts of different mini-fauna and all sorts of cool habitat diversity projects. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him, but before we get to it, we're going to talk about our weekly suggestion, which is to give something new a try. I've been trying to learn a new skill every year, from swing dancing to dressage, which is just fancy horseback riding as far as I can tell. Um, and this year I'm trying out for a performance salsa team here in Colorado while I also just struggle my way through continuing to improve my swing dancing and bachata. Um, so try something new, even if it's small. Now let's get to the interview with Dr. Erim Gomez. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gomez. It's so good to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So why don't we kind of start out back in the beginning. Tell us a little bit about how you got into conservation biology. What was your path? Yeah. So it starts like many people uh, actually watching TV. I remember uh, seeing videos um, of of now who I know who they are. They were the Craighead brothers of doing they were doing research in Yellowstone on grizzly bears. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's cool. I want to do that. And then I also like around the same time period, I remember seeing David Attenborough talk about uh, amphibians mm. in the Amazon. And I'm like, okay, I also want to do that. But I thought being a biologist was going out there and just recording animals. Um, later on in life, I figured out that that wasn't the case. Uh, but I had an interesting childhood and that I grew up in the suburbs till I was 11 years old um, in Southern California. Both my parents were uh, farm workers at different points of their life. And uh, when I was 11 years old, we moved to Oregon, uh, it, a very rural town. Um, it was right after the Spotted Owl Wars. It was 1994. And uh, the community was ha going through some economic hardship. It was a primarily uh, white community. I think I was like the third Latino family, or we were the third Latino family um, in that community of 4,000 people. But one of the cool things was that we had an 80-acre ranch. Um, oh, wow. And we grew, yeah, yeah. I, we grew our own food, um, cattle, chickens, geese, ducks, pigs, goats, sheep. Um, had a large, large garden to the point where, you know, is it a garden or is it, is it, is it a farm, you know, getting on that level. Uh, but we had a fish hatchery in my high school campus. And, uh, Whoa, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the wow. fish hatchery. It was through a program called uh, Salmon Trout Enhancement Program through the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. And uh, Compared to big hatcheries, we were, you know, we're minuscule. You know, big hatcheries have millions upon millions of salmon fry. We had 30,000, but that's still 30,000, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah. That's more yeah. salmon than most people have in high school. That's true, right? And so <laughs> for three years, I, I worked um, in that salmon hatchery, and I started learning about 
you know, the complexities of uh, conservation that, you know, that the value of, of a, a, in or, organisms and charismatic fauna and how, uh, you know, I started thinking about how Native Americans relate to uh, their food resources or their resources. And, and even using the term resources might not even be the appropriate term because they don't, some, you know, tribes definitely don't see them as resources. Um, it's much more of a communal uh, feel. We use that term in, in the Western world, resources, right? Um, and then also seeing how, you know, fisheries affects this from recreational fisheries to subsistence fishing to uh, commercial fishing and logging and pollution, right? And these, these, all these sectors of the, of the public and science coming together and how complex uh, conservation problems uh, can sometimes be. Uh, that ended up, uh, you know, leading me into, I ended up going to Southern Oregon University, where I struggled at times. <laughs> I, uh, it took me six years to get my bachelor's degree. Um, and uh, during that time period, I, I, you know, I was not the best student. That's one of the reasons it took me six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I ended up, part of that was because I had, um, you know, I had dyslexia, I had undiagnosed ADHD. You know, it just took me longer to do things. Yeah, um, of course. But you know, it's and that that was the case for my master's and PhD. It took me longer to finish than most people, but you know, it's led me here to the University of Montana, the number one wildlife program in North America, as we like to say. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a dream come true. Interesting thing about, you know, that, uh, that high school. So I graduated with 82 people um, and in my graduating class. Our science teacher, natural resource teacher, environmental science teacher was uh, a gentleman named Norm Devereaux, who I still chat with today, even, you know, 20 years after I graduated high school. When I got here, uh, or actually as I was applying here, um, I got a, a message from an old high school uh, acquaintance, classmate, and, you know, he, he told me, you know, I, I'd actually forgotten about this, but um, he mentioned to me, hey, I saw you're interviewing for a job here. You know, I'm a PhD candidate here in the wildlife program. And he just oh finished, gosh. yeah, he just finished his PhD uh, last April. And it just goes to show you how small the world is. Just to give that idea for the listeners, how far apart these towns are. I mean, if I were to drive it with like not stopping, it'd be like 16 hours. You know, so it's, you know, it's three states away. Okay, so so it took you six years to get your undergrad. What were what were you studying in your, um, you were in California at that point, right? Or yeah, Oregon, so, so in undergrad, uh, so in undergrad, I was already living in Oregon. Because I moved there when I okay. was in Oregon to when I was 11. So I went to Southern Oregon University and I, okay. I majored in uh, environmental studies with a focus in biology. Okay, cool. Uh, really broad degree. Uh, yeah. And, and then, but I also uh, minored in economics and political science. I'm actually almost, I almost have a degree in political science, but I just didn't want to stick around another term. Six and a half years already seemed like, six years, yeah. I mean, seemed excessive. Six and a half years is a long time. That's yeah. So uh, I would have ordered another. You know, it would have been another six and a half years if I would have finished that that uh, <laughs> yeah. science degree. And I was like, uh, no one. One of the interesting things: once you get a master's and PhD, uh, very few people are interested in what you did your undergrad in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
yeah that makes sense um okay so when did when did kind of amphibians come around for you i know you mentioned david attenborough back in back in your childhood but you know i think of you as an amphibian guy and i know you're 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 much more than that but but where did amphibians yeah come from? yeah no i mean it I, I i've been called worse things than an amphibian guy so that's so okay <laughs> yeah, it's not an insult that's for sure <laughs> yeah no i uh I, I think like a lot of kids um I, as a kid, we had uh, these toads. I think now I, I didn't, I just knew them as toads, but they're probably Western toads uh, that we had in California that lived like outside our front door. My dad had this really beautiful, like tropical plant setting um, in California. It was almost like there was, he kept it so nice. You could actually like kind of feel the humidity when you were walking into oh like, our, wow. so we had like this porch. Um, and so he had all these tropical truckable plants there you know and uh we had this uh, it was actually three different toads but we called them pancake because you know they reminded us of pancakes say we me my older brother um that was like my <laughs> first you know actually Wait, like, were holding... they flat why did they it, why I mean, did they, they were you they were they were fat so you know they're just oh, they, okay. they're the shape of a hamburger <laughs> yeah i think of toads as more kind of like dumpling shaped perhaps mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, some of them, okay. you know, right. when they get really fat, you know, healthy, uh, maybe is a better <laughs> way to say it, is uh, they, they they get really wide. At least these toads We are very, do. very pro-fat pro, pro fat in the biology world. <laughs> yes, you know, it's so funny because that's how, when we were, I was te recently teaching a, a class on deer necropsy, and necrop deer necropsies or necropsies are, are autopsies on animals. And we were showing students how to determine the overall general health of an animal. And you know how you, the number one thing you do to check, you know, you make sure their organs are okay. Um, but then yeah. you, you look at how much fat they have. Right. And Cause the more fat, the better. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. which evolutionarily makes sense. Right. But, uh, of course. and yeah. when I was in California, we had, Excuse me. When I when when we moved to Oregon, there's a bunch of different amphibians, and and uh, that was cool. But I didn't really know the species. You know, I knew a chorus frog, and and I knew uh, the newt, which was everywhere. By the way, the the uh, the rough skin newt, which is native to the you know, Western North America, uh, mm -hmm. is like the most poisonous, toxic animal, and most people really? don't know that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So it produces so, the same toxin um, as as pufferfish. Oh no! Yeah. So so are they toxic? Like if you touch them, or just if you eat them? Uh, if you eat them, there's only been one confirmed death. Uh, you know, oh, okay. and it was a it was a dare of a a student in Oregon. Oh uh, no. That didn't know. This was back I think in the 60s or 70s or something along those lines. Um there's oh, another no. there's another suspected case but there's no confirmation of that case. But um Okay. I do remember. You know, I'm a lot less scared of the animals that are only dangerous if I eat them because I'm I'm generally pretty good about not eating things I'm not supposed to. It's the ones that that you know if you accidentally touch them or like I have a, I had a caterpillar fall out the back of my shirt in the Amazon once, and I had like a whole like I had like a string rash down my back for like three days from like you know I was like, buddy, I didn't mean to do anything to you. Like, why you gotta hurt me like that? 
Oh yeah, and you you know I was actually <laughs> when I went to the Amazon I was uh, nervous because there's some a- amphibians there that are poisonous enough that if you have a cuticle cut and you touch them that could be deadly. So oh my God. <laughs> don't don't go oh if you're God. ever in the Amazon. Uh, don't go. Just don't touch don't, things. Don't touch things. It's better just not to touch things. Yeah. 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 That was that was definitely my general rule of thumb in the Amazon is just like, don't touch it unless yeah. I like see the guy to pick it up first. Like, yeah. Yeah. Here I am, an amphibian expert, and I'm like, I don't know if this is poisonous or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Hey everyone, just dropping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. Um, So we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past. We've got the $3 a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but you also get to join our monthly training video calls, which are great if you're considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level. We will record the calls and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, And we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work or explosives or narcotics or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, canine conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. So I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we are also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to Uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls, we will all watch the same webinar, read the same scientific paper, or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity, and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it. So that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge, not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world, but also learning more about ecology, conservation, odor dynamics, all those great things. It's real nerdy. It's awesome. So I also added some exciting new merch. So for our patrons, now once every quarter, you will get an exclusive um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, You get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers. And all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon. And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon. So I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon. Again, for as little as three bucks a month, you get all sorts of fun stuff at those higher levels. You do get more one-on-one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so you you kind of grew up, you had toads on your front porch, and then you started falling in love with all the other amphibians kind of all around Southern Oregon. Um, and then, so you went on to study them right away in grad school, or kind of what was what was the path from there? Yeah, so I, originally I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do a master's degree doing more fisheries work, and then if I decide to get a PhD, then that probably means I'm going into academia, and uh, I'll study amphibians. Because I knew that, you know, studying amphibians... Uh, with the master's degree might limit my job options um, and oh, so I, yeah yeah it's not like there's a there's a lot more fisheries jobs than there are amphibian jobs and 
so I uh, I started in a, a limnology lab, what we what would probably broadly be known as an aquatic ecology lab, uh, doing fisheries research, and it just wasn't the right fit for me. And so I was able to, you know, talk to another professor, uh, Dr. Rod Saylor in the Dangerous Species Lab at Washington State, same university. And I was able to, um, you know, switch labs and start working with amphibians. And I've been working with amphibians ever since. Very cool. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what, um, what that looks like currently? And I know you also, we can talk about teaching as well, because I know one of the things that I really love about your approach is your, you are so focused on not just the, the research, but also the teaching and kind of inspiring our next generation. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to nowadays. Yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about the research and a little bit about teaching. Um, so, you know, the university of Montana is just such a great place. I mean, we have, 26 tenure track faculty uh, or professors and m numerous um, affiliated faculty that do all kinds of research. Uh, I'm bringing on my very first graduate student, which, you know, for potential grad students out there, or undergrads or people thinking about going to grad school, we get nervous too, because I want to be a good mentor. Um, and I'm going to actually be doing oh, um, habitat modeling, which is some of the things that I, some of the questions I've been working on with amphibians, but we're going to be doing this habitat um, modeling for back-billed cuckoos. Essentially, we're going to try to figure out what habitat they're in, what habitat they're using, um, and a little bit maybe some population status, because we don't know very much about them here in um, Montana, actually in a big part of the range. Um, well, the cool thing about this project is that we actually, uh, we're going to be using these little digital audio recorders that will, that are specifically mm -hmm. made or not made, but we, we program them to only catch the call of this bird. Um, and so we go set them out for a couple months and then go back and collect them. The reason we're doing this is because these birds are pretty skittish and don't like to call around people. Um, oh, and so, okay. yeah, so it's hard to collect data on something that doesn't like making noise if people are around. <laughs> um, I think, I, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, other cool things we're, we're doing is, is we're doing a few different projects in, uh, hope, hopefully this summer on amphibians, uh, looking at the status of Western toads and Yellowstone, looking at uh, the Great Basin toad, uh, spadefoot toad. Spadefoot toads, by the way, are adorable. If you know, everyone should Google spadefoot toads. We and will. We'll drop a couple photos into the the show notes for everyone. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, they are just so cute. Um, and we're gonna, you know, try to find out whether um, they're in more places than we think. So we're gonna go look for them in different areas that we haven't before, um, and maybe even try to uh, use something called uh, eDNA, environmental DNA, where you take a sample of water, about a liter, and you run it through a paper filter, and as long as there's like two or three cells in there of the species you're looking for, you can detect that species. So it's a better way to find out whether you have a species in an area that might, where the population um, numbers might be low, where you're having issues detecting them, but they might be there. And, you know, hopefully 
there's there's talk about doing some grizzly bear research I'm, i'll keep that kind of quiet until we figure that out but if we do grizzly bear research i would have hit the trifecta of studying amphibians in the amazon and being able to do grizzly bear research yeah holy cow um that would be incredible yeah and the the edna stuff is really cool i know um some of the work that we do with the conservation dogs is kind of to complement edna or confirm edna work and one of these days i really want to get someone on the on the podcast who's kind of an edna expert um, one of, yeah I, uh, one of my committee members uh for my phd ooh. dr karen goldberg was one of the very first scientists to publish on edna back in the 2008 wow. 2007 time period and i actually did some yeah. of that I, I i worked for her doing um developing edna tests on uh for zebra mussels um which okay, are an invasive yeah. species of mussel so trying to use it as a edna is a great way to detect something uh it, it when it's in very low numbers so if you have you'd want to know if you have zebra mussels to try to reduce their spread although i don't know yeah. if there's ever been any successful eradication of zebra mussels not as far as i know i've done some looking into it and yeah that actually it was zebra mussels that i know working dogs for conservation has done some work where there was an edna detection and then they take the dogs in to try to pinpoint or confirm the edna because it could have been dead cells or you know a bird could have eaten a zebra mussel and then pooped it out um yeah that's, that that's one of the things about edna is that you know we're still kind of fine-tuning that technique so it just tells yeah. us right now you know that it's there and not necessarily yeah. how recently i mean usually it's relatively recently um yeah and, and we're tweaking it the science is getting better there we're getting better techniques yeah and i know one of the other ways that um some conservation dogs have been used again with invasive species was that they got an edna hit i believe on wild boar um and then they took the dogs in to actually try to locate um, the scat so that they had a better idea of kind of where in the waterway the the wild boar were hanging out so that hopefully they could probably I'm sure then some other agency was involved in the eradication um, mm -hmm. attempts but yeah it's I, I love thinking about how the conservation dogs and the eDNA often um, work together really well and you know similarly with the the bioacoustics when I was on the um, the wind farms this last summer they did quite a bit with some bioacoustic recordings to try to monitor when and where the bats were and then the dogs were going in and actually finding the um the casualties that may or may not have resulted from when the bats were moving through so you could maybe hear on um you know and then you could kind of compare that data you could map it over each mm -hmm. other and um uh, yeah just so many different layers to it it's it's so cool <laughs> yeah i you know as you're talking i think we we meant we chatted about this before but you know with this grizzly bear project part of it would be trying to determine um you know genetics and get collecting genetic samples and that there's yeah. an example there where you know a conservation dog could potentially help us go collect scat samples to do genetic analysis yeah yeah i mean you know you know how to find me uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i well and that was one of the questions i wanted to kind of talk to you about a little bit and then we'll circle back to teaching was um you know you and i have had so many good conversations over beers of kind of some of the different ways that conservation dogs could be useful for some of your research um and that's you know part of the reason i wanted to bring you on of course is we always we always need to bring it back to the dogs eventually but um yeah, what are some of the applications or frustrations that you're hitting with any of your work that maybe dogs could or couldn't help with? Yeah, I think one of the things is that 
historically a lot of a, a lot of our survey methods have been uh, relatively intensive and human uh, based as in so we're going out there and looking and seeing right and you know with your work and i'm sure your listeners know mm -hmm. your work with the work that you've done uh humans uh don't can't see as well as dogs can smell <laughs> and so and because oh, of that's that, such a good way to put it yeah <laughs> yeah you know I, I i think when you came and spoke to my class i think i mentioned to my students was that you know a human can't see through grass but a dog can smell through it right yeah um, yeah exactly and so it kind of makes and, and with some of the work that you've done in you know the literature it makes me realize i wonder how much detectability issues we're having which which yeah. means that we're going out and, and this is an issue with with terrestrial salamanders uh, it's really hard to detect uh, what we call terrestrial salamanders but it's a bit better term for them would be like subterranean salamanders how do you oh. detect salamanders that um that live underground or live in stumps uh you know it, it can be challenging especially if you start yeah, digging around definitely. um you might destroy their habitat right by... yeah yeah and so i wonder if there'd be ways to um you know use detection dogs to you know figure out okay yeah this looks like there's an individual here or there was an individual here recently at this dump at this dump and it look it looks like they're everywhere okay we're fine we don't have to dig them up the population is probably we're just detecting occupancy whether they're or not not numbers but if you're detecting them in a bunch of places on the landscape you can probably infer that the population is doing well right and so uh, in eDNA, you know, if you have rain or runoff, potentially you could be sampling that, but you don't know where that runoff or eDNA is coming from. Versus with yeah. a detection dog, you might be able to do some of that work. Yeah, and, well, and does eDNA give you enough detail? I, I'm sure it varies a little bit from species to species, but on kind of indi individual numbers, like, can you actually look at that and say that you've got... 12 different individuals yet or are we not there yet we're not quite there yet i mean if there's a lot of dna um yeah you could potentially mm -hmm. do some of that um but in, in most cases we're not there yet people are working on and we're, we're getting closer on trying to actually uh, come up with population estimates using eDNA. but the technology is not quite there just yet and even yeah, then to you me, know I we think don't as like presence absence for the most part yeah and, and in an aquatic system depending where the eDNA the DNA is coming from it doesn't necessarily tell you where right it could be coming mm -hmm. up from and when you're working with the salamanders um you, you know a kilometer is somewhat useful but it'd be nice to pinpoint it to a stump you know um <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and i could imagine i mean i know like dogs have been used to find truffles for so long and truffles are underground and they are relatively um aromatic but um i know there's been a lot of really cool work with the greater crested newt i believe which is uh i believe europe um, yes that has been really successful with conservation dogs so yeah it, that seems like a really good application and again i love your point about like yeah, even if we did want to go out there and try to find them manually, which A, is probably really inefficient and really slow, B, then we're also shredding their stumps. Um, yeah, which, which, you know, if we've got an endangered animal, that's not really a, not really a good look, not a, yeah, not a good so goal. We don't, you know, some of these animals, we don't really know their, their status. 
So we yeah. don't want to be going out there and, and you know, conservation is wildlife biologists. We don't want to be going out there and, and destroy the thing that we care about. Um, yeah, of course. Another thing that would be really interesting to do, re you know, do research on is um, flat tail horned lizards, specifically the, um, oh yeah, specifically the fat tail horned species, which is a endangered, uh, federally endangered species. And for anyone that has never seen a horned lizard, they kind of look like a triceratops. They're they, so cool. Oh, oh my, my god, gosh. I love them so much. And one of the interesting things about them is they're, they're species specialists that they, they eat o almost exclusively ants. Because most oh. things can't eat ants. If actually, if you think about it, uh -huh. most species, most things that eat ants are ant specialists. Think of ant eaters, right? Uh -huh. um, I think penguins <laughs> yeah. also eat ants. I'm not 100% sure, but I think they, they do. Um, They've got the right shape for it. If not ants, yeah. maybe termites. Yeah. So, and part of the reason that, that things don't eat ants is because they're bitter. You know, and so yeah. uh, that can upset stomachs of different organisms, or they just don't really taste good. So the benefit mm -hmm. of a species like an ant eater or horn lizards to eat ants is that they're using a resource that other things, other animals aren't using. So they don't have to compete with many other species. But mm -hmm. um, it's really the the strategy that fat tail horn lizards have to survive predation. Um, is that they blend into the environment really well, like extraordinarily mm. well. Um, they, I was out doing a study for the Bureau of Land Management back uh, when I was an undergrad in southeastern California, and we were detecting their scat, um, but we were having a hard time detecting them. I think I only detected two in the whole two months where I was looking for these individuals. Um, and this that's an example where I think that conserva the conservation detection dogs would be really great because the, yeah. the horn lizards don't typically run until like right before you're about to grab them. I mean, you, you, can, <laughs> yeah. you can be studying them. I know this has happened. People have studied them and they're looking for them and they step on them on accident because they don't oh, move. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause they're just so camouflaged that they're, yeah. They, yeah. Instinctively just want to stay put. Cause if you move, then you've lost your camouflage. Yeah, the only problem with that research is that uh, you know they're they're active when it's it's pretty toasty, so that would be uh, some hot uh, field research. Yeah, <laughs> you need some sunscreen yeah, wonder... and you need to keep your dogs hydrated. Yeah, yeah, and that's always a tricky thing for well, and especially I don't know um, what other reptiles may be active in that area, but you know the first thing I think when it's like oh gosh I'm in an arid area and I'm working during the hot of the day it's like oh god snakes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we were usually uh, the lucky part is we were usually done collecting data by eight o'clock. Um, but uh, okay. or not eight o'clock, excuse me, uh, by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay. Um, past about 95 degrees ground temperature, which is usually a little hotter sometimes, a little hotter than uh, uh, like chest yeah, temperature. Gosh. Yeah. Um, we will, we would stop collecting data cause the, uh, literature said that they're, they, they're less active, you know, past uh, 95 degrees, they'll probably gotcha. go look for shade. So you're not going to, again, you're not going to be able to see them through vegetation. Um, as it is, yeah. it's hard to see them on soil or sand or, or dirt, right. Um, let alone under vegetation. 
Yeah, I wonder if there's any ability for the dogs to potentially find them in the evenings or early, early mornings when they still haven't left wherever they spend the night. That would be, this would be a question if you ever were to actually start, you know, <laughs> start looking into hiring a dog team for this. this. These are some of the things we'd have to start thinking about. It's like, I'd be really yeah, curious for the, too for detection. Yeah. Like, you know, because we had, it's so hard to study. I, I what I call like to call it call charismatic minifauna. I'm actually thinking about yeah. calling my lab that, but you know I'm also trying to work with grizzly bears, so I don't want people not to come and do research with me. But I, I like to call <laughs> these small organisms from insects to amphibians and turtles charismatic minifauna. Um, yeah, I love because, that. Yeah, right. Everyone always talks about charismatic megafauna, like you know, grizzly bears, lions, elephant, giraffe. I'm like, how about us cute charismatic mini fauna? <laughs> um, but it, I bet uh, you know, using detection dogs, we would be detecting more horned lizards than we are uh, just doing visual surveys. I'm over, I'm very yeah. confident of that, and and that's I would useful. So. And that's useful because it's hard to study something if you can't even find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, and you know, one of the cool things too with a project like like this, um, with these horned lizards, is sometimes what we run into is that the dogs, yeah, they might be better than people, but they also just have different blind spots. Mm. Um, so sometimes in some of these sorts of studies, the human searchers will still find stuff. Like this last summer, I actually found a couple bats um, when I was out with Niffler that, that he missed. Um, not very many, but I did find a couple. And it's just, you know, we have different, we have different biases and different blind spots from our dogs. So yeah, the dogs are probably going to blow us out of the water if you've got a lizard that's halfway under a rock or in some vegetation or maybe in a crevice or something. But um, we are so attuned to noticing movement that if you did have a lizard moving somewhere in your vicinity, there's a good chance the human searcher would actually be better at finding that than the dog. Um, which is yeah, just, it, you know, it, yeah, it, you know, it, it definitely depends. But, you know, one of the things that we always like to talk about, and partially because we don't want in the conservation dog world, I don't want people thinking that I'm trying to put all the human field techs out of a job because that's, uh, that's not yeah. my goal. Also. Also, there's no way we can. There are enough dogs to fill that um, right now. But and, and even you know, then, dogs don't work alone, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's that is that's where I was going. Is you know, we part of the the communication that I am always trying to get across in this podcast is the level of expertise you need as a handler. You know, yeah. I get a lot of uh, inquiries from people who are really into dog training who maybe want to do this job, and it's like. Yeah, that's a great place to start for sure. That's part of where I started from. But you also need to have, you know, you, you need to be a naturalist and an ecologist as well on top of that. And, you know, again, I need to be able when I'm out in the field to identify these things on the fly um, and help my dog out as much as I can. Or, or at least, you know, even if I'm not helping the dog and the dog's off doing something else, at least I have the wherewithal to be like, oh my God, well, there's a horned lizard that he missed. I'm going to make sure I mark that down. Yeah. And you're about to like to see it if they move. So Yeah, exactly. So yeah, let's, um, did you have anything more you wanted to say? I know one of the things we made, we wanted to make sure we talked about was the charismatic mini fauna, which again, I don't think I've heard that term before and I just love it. Is there anything more you wanted to say kind of on that subject? 
Yeah, so the the reason I, I like to use that term and the reason I'm considering naming my research lab that is because uh, a lot of conservation effort uh, in in the world actually is for mammals and birds. Uh, birds, it's yeah. easy to see, right? Colorful, they call, and it's not all birds, of course, right? The more colorful they are, the more the bigger sound they make, you know, the the more attention they yeah. get. Yeah, and yeah, the same with mammals. Are sexier than finches. Exactly, exactly. Um, but you know, I I like fighting for the little guy. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the amphibians, the toads, the 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 reptiles, um, even the butterflies, the monarch butterflies. I'm currently working on a on a paper mm -hmm. uh, examining their breeding habitat because they're specialists. Um, and and my hope is to try to get that charismatic mini fauna you know, hashtag going so so we can yeah. use it to share photos and connect people with all these other critters, right? You know, birds and, and mammals are cool. Obviously, I want to study grizzly bears, but uh, there's so much diversity out there. And the, yeah. the most endangered tax, I was talking about this in class today, um, are invertebrates and amphibians, like of all animals. Yeah. So, I mean, we need a, it's going to be hard to have a, a healthy ecosystem with all, without, you know, vertebrates. Um, and then amphibians, well, there might be other things that come and take up their ecological role. But amphibians evolved 350 million years ago. They've survived oh multiple extinctions. Um, and they are now the most threatened vertebrate group. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That is something. That's bleak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, we, we had an interview um, that'll come out a couple weeks ahead of yours with Nate Marshall from Give Bats a Break. And this was one of the things we talked about with him as well. You know, one in five mammals on Earth is a bat. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose one in five species probably not individuals because otherwise it's probably chickens yeah yeah um, maybe cows. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um but you know and nobody nobody knows about bats nobody cares about bats you know that's uh, that it, it's disproportionate there's there's really little funding for a lot of these mini fauna and i think you know bats in my opinion certainly fall into that charismatic mini fauna oh, group absolutely yeah it's not oh to me the way I, i'm using it it's not an evolutionary or taxonomic term <laughs> it's just more of a a way to get people interested in, in in small in smaller fauna yeah well we're just we're just getting more and more inclusive and i mean maybe in 20 years we're going to be talking about the the non-charismatic mini fauna uh <laughs> yes and the, I don't know who that is. I don't know who wants to admit that their study species isn't charismatic, but um, <laughs> everyone. My hope is that we're going to be able to define every species as charismatic. I think if you know enough about just about any species, except for maybe like parasites, then they become charismatic. And again, I'm really sorry to the parasitologists out there, but you will never convince me that ticks are charismatic. <laughs> you know, I think you're going to have to uh, uh, invite somebody to talk about uh, ticks. I feel like you're going yeah. to get some down emails. The gauntlet, like. I had a. Uh, yeah, I'm, I would be happy to be wrong. You know, if someone can convince me that ticks are charismatic, like, cool. Good for them, I guess. <laughs> that would be impressive. I'd listen. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so talk to us a little bit about teaching, because um, again, I know that's one of the things that you're really passionate about, and I've seen you in the classroom. You're so engaged with your students. You really love connecting with them. You know, what is it about teaching that really um, inspires you so much? I, uh, I've had some, I've been blessed with some great teachers and mentors in my life. Um, and like everyone else, I've been blessed with, or not blessed, I, I've had teachers and, and mentors that weren't very great or supportive. Um, mm-hmm. I had, I was, I was in doing, starting my PhD, and I had just won this fellowship, the Bullet Environmental Fellowship, for any conservationists in, out of Oregon or Washington or British Columbia that are interested in, in uh, continuing their education um, in conservation or environmental issues, check out the Bullet Fellowship. Um, but uh, I, there was some, it went, during this time period, there, there was laws that were being passed uh, in the United States uh, about banning ethnic studies. There was, there was anti-immigration uh, rhetoric coming out, and I'm Mexican American, and and uh, regardless of where you stand on things like that, it as being a Mexican American and turning on the news and then hearing your people and your history being treated like second class citizens, it's just not a good feeling. And I was remembering listening to this as I was developing habitat models for amphibians, and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I'm I'm yeah. here getting. Um, PhD studying amphibians when my people are literally getting treated like second-class citizens. I asked the yeah. universe, the the creator. Literally, I asked the brick wall in front of me, um, and and the universe uh, gave me an answer. Um, there's a couple students that came into my life in that very next week, who I I not to take too much credit from them, but I had a profound impact on them. One of the students I helped yeah. mentor to get the scholarship, another student I helped guide and, and through my connections was able to get this, another student uh, into a scholarship into Oregon State. Um, that student is now finishing up or has finished up their master's degree. The other person has finished up a PhD. And I, I asked the universe why, you know, why am I doing this? If, you know, if my yeah. people are getting treated like this and the universe gave me an answer. The, the answer was that as an academic, uh, I could help my people. You know, one of the students yeah. that I helped was Mexican American. The other student I helped was Haitian, um, which kind of goes into my the other thing I'm passionate about, which is diversifying the the STEM fields or diversifying academia and, and particularly conservation. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I try to emulate and I try to be the professor. Uh, that I wanted, right? The professor that 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 supported me, the one that believed me, and sometimes a professor that, you know, there was one professor that said, uh, you know, you can do better than this. Um, mm. uh, professor Eric Dittmer, I I strengthened my chair, and and but it was good. It was what I needed. Yeah. You know, I yeah. was kind of working too much as a cashier and. And my grades weren't very good, and he handed back, you know, my, I went to go pick up my final, and he had me sit down, and 
he's like, what are you doing? You know, why are you here? And it wasn't, it wasn't one of those, it wasn't one of those here's like, oh, you're not good enough. It was like, it was totally obvious. He's, you could do better than this. There's, you know, you yeah, have more potential. Yeah, it's like, remember why you're here. You know, you're not here to be working as a cashier. Yeah, which was what I was doing. I was like spending most of my awake time, you know, working as a cashier. Like it was, a, I yeah. was like, why am I here? This is not in my, I, I was doing that because I was adverse to taking out loans. Um, I didn't uh -huh. want to. Uh, you know, go really in debt, which is really common amongst first-generation Americans, right? Um, Definitely. We're really concerned, you know, for, you know, livelihood, making, uh, being able to pay our bills. I mean, my father used to go to bed hungry in Mexico, right? Um, that, mm -hmm. Luckily, my mom, that never happened to my mom, but, you know, when you're that close, you know, to, you know, your real economic concerns, um, you know, financing, you know, your life, your education, everything just becomes, uh, it ends up becoming the most important thing. And don't get me wrong, it's important. But uh, if, believe it or not, I'm one of the few people that would probably say, I wish I would have taken out more loans as an undergrad. Um, yeah. Because. I, I actually, I think I would agree with you. I, I was in a similar boat where I was just, I was so worried about taking out loans. I was so, so worried about like trying to graduate college debt free. And I, I spend a lot of time working as a bartender when I really probably could have been studying orgo. Yeah, and and getting different experiences, right? And and networking, yeah. and and getting involved in clubs and and the skills that you learn and everything. It was really hard. I became a much better student um, once I, uh, you know, actually I I stopped working as much. I was I ended up getting a job as a janitor, uh, working from four to eight in the morning. But uh, it was more stable, and my day was mine. Um, and I was half asleep doing the janitor job anyways. So, <laughs> uh, But I got so many more opportunities yeah. after that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one last thing we'll say on the student loans point is also, like, maybe we should create a better system where it's more affordable to just go to college. But, um, you know, <laughs> given that that is not the world that we live in. Um, yeah, and I you are... Um, Erim, you were doing such a good job of like jumping ahead of me and segueing into all of these questions. Um, I feel like I could have just muted myself this whole conversation and just let oh you go. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm complimenting you. You've got your oh. talking points so down. Because um, yeah, I really, the last thing I wanted to kind of bring it back to after talking about teaching was, you know, kind of colonialism in conservation and how white this field is, myself included. Um and, you know, some of the things that we could be thinking about, you know, beyond just giving like a land acknowledgement when we're in our Instagram posts or our, our, our papers. Yeah. So one of the things that's really important to me is thinking about how do we create a more inclusive conservation field, profession and community. Uh, I do uh, land acknowledgements, um, uh, currently, you know, I'm, I'm, we're in the, I'm in the, the Chehalis and Cowspell people's land, although there's other indigenous people that also used these, uh, the land here as well. But I do, mm -hmm. I give them in my, try to give them in my very first uh, day of class. But I go beyond that just acknowledgement and I try to tell, share with students what it means to me and what it means that I'm going to try to do because of that. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, I, me and a couple colleagues visited a 
uh, Shailish uh, Kootenai College, just an hour north of here, which is a private mm -hmm. um, Native American college. And not all their students are, are Native American, but most of their students are. And, and we were talking to their natural research program and talking about ways to collaborate, you know, and also trying to bring some of the, you know, their graduate, their students that graduate into our program. Part of it also means um, trying to uh, connect with uh, indigenous communities on uh, restoration, conservation efforts, but also be respectful, right? Um, yeah. Many you know, there is a lot of traditional ecological knowledge out there. And a lot of that information is, is sacred to them. Um, as yeah. conservationists, um, I think you know, we have to build relationships with people and communities before we even start thinking about or asking about, uh, about that ecological knowledge that they have. Um, there's been yeah. many instances as you probably know of of uh colonizing biologists going and getting famous and publishing research based on information they learned from indigenous communities yeah well and there's this like savior complex too especially in a lot of international conservation they're like oh my gosh we have to go to these countries and help save the tigers or whatever and it's like whoa 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 we're not doing such a great job of protecting the wolves here in our own backyard um, absolutely so i was at a conference uh international conference recently where we were talking about diversity and conservation and there was a woman out of africa a couple people out of latin america and one of the things that we, we talked about was make when we do international research or even in in area in indigenous lands is that we try to find and collaborate and work with uh, the the people that are on the ground there that are living there yeah. already right yeah. um, and seeing how we can support them in the work that they are already doing um, most yeah. of you know, the biodiversity in the world is in areas where there are indigenous communities, not just you know, yeah. North America or South America, but in Africa, Asia, you know, uh, Australia, there's uh, there's indigenous communities there. And we've often uh, and I say this as a you know, profession, you know, biologists uh, from in the in the Western world will go out there and say, oh, we know what's the best thing. Right. Um, and that's often not the case. And it's very much of a white yeah. savior complex issue that yeah, we need the, to address. The kind of the irony or like the hubris of someone coming out of like yeah, the background of North America slash Europe where, you know, we've like extractive industries and just deforestation and everything has gotten to the point where there's so much less biodiversity than there used to be. And now we're trying to go, go to the tropics and be like, Oh, here, we know how to protect this. It's like, do we? Cause we haven't done such a good job in our own backyard yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a lot of indigenous community, particularly here in North America, and I don't want to over homogenize any group, but you know, the, the Western way of looking at, uh, at wildlife has been in the past as a resource, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not the case with many indigenous cultures. Um, it's more than a resource. Yeah. It's a community member. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. And I think it's just a good thing to kind of 
continually be having these conversations. I know I have been really enjoying um, Brooke Mitchell Norman, who runs the Rewildology podcast, has been mm-hmm. doing a good job lately with several of her guests talking about a lot of these sorts of things. Um, so I guess on that note, is there anything you wanted to dive into a little bit more or circle back to before we wrap up here? Um, yeah, the, the one thing that, that I've been yeah. trying to work on specifically here at the University of Montana and, and in my career is really trying to diversify the conservation community and not just, uh, you know, human diversity, well, not just uh, ethnic diversity or gender diversity or gender identity diversity or sexuality, uh, but even socioeconomic status diversity, right? Um, There's barriers that are keeping people from uh, entering this profession. And I think we need to, one of the things that we're trying to do uh, here at, at the University of Montana is trying to create more opportunities for students regardless of their socioeconomic status, right? Um, trying to also teach, uh, be more inclusive in our teaching and decolonizing yeah. our teaching. Uh, the history yeah. of wildlife management, or the North American model of wildlife management is very European-centric and very resource-based and very game-based at that. Yes. Um, oh, my gosh, yes. And and it's always, and don't get me wrong, there is a lot of benefits, and, and there's been a lot of funding and research done because of the North American model. And then for those that don't know, the North American model is essentially um, that hunters and fishermen, through taxes and fees, um, on equipment and, and tags uh, end up funding a lot of conservation. One of the downside to that is that is that we spend a lot more money and time uh, on game animals, and most right. species are not game animals. I think somewhere it was in in, in Montana, you know, eighty percent of you know vertebrates are not uh, are not game animals. Maybe I think it's higher than that, but. Uh, either way, the yeah, vast majority. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, I think one of the ways to solve that is, is, you know, thinking about different funding models of how uh, we fund conservation. Um, the other way of doing that is just diversifying the profession. Um, and yeah. so, I, you know, I, I, one of the things that I work on is trying to create little projects for students that they can do even if they have a side job, but still get research opportunities, um, encourage yeah. students of color and, and diversity, diverse communities to go out and, and know that, uh, that they too can make in this profession. I am one of the few wildlife conservation PhDs in the United States uh, that's Latino. Um, yeah. I, I can think of to a couple others in the, in the wildlife field, a little, uh, several more if we include pants and other, other kind of conservation questions. Um, but, you know, Latinos are one of the biggest uh, minorities in the United States, right? And I'm one of the yeah, few yeah. in this field. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see that changed. And so to any yeah. future... Uh, or someone thinking about joining the profession, you know, wherever your background is, uh, I would encourage you that you're needed in this field um, and yeah. and consider it because it is a very fulfilling uh, field. If it's challenging, but uh, uh, you know, it, it 
my life has become a lot better uh, the moment I started doing things and taking jobs that fulfilled me personally. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely been true for me as well. And yeah, it's such a good point about, you know, all different sorts of diversity, because I know, you know, especially when I was an undergrad and fresh out of college, I think my career path would have been different had I been able to get paid internships exactly. in my chosen field. I think I probably would have a PhD in avian behavior at this point. I, w I really wanted to be a bird behavior researcher um, and like avian cognition. And I just, the only things I could find were unpaid or I even had to pay for the experience. And that was just not an option. So I ended up taking a job as a dog trainer and I don't regret anything because it's, it's led me to the field of conservation detection dogs. But I, you mm -hmm. know, the only reason I am a dog trainer is out of economic necessity. And yeah, I, you know, I love it now. It's, it's fine now, but like it, you know, how many people out there, with backgrounds similar to mine or similar to yours, are there who, you know, maybe didn't find anything that brought them back full circle into this career because, again, they couldn't afford to do these unpaid internships or poorly paid internships or, God forbid, paying to go do some, like, volunteer, you know, whatever sort of, in you know, like... Yeah, that whole industry is something we can talk about. Yeah, I, I, that's some other research that I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm working on some research to try to figure out, you know, how, what's the percentage of paid internships, unpaid internships out there, you know, that are broadly advertised, uh, and then kind of talk about, you know, how this might be limiting. Uh, diversity in our field from and again right. it, it, this, this is just from a socioeconomic standpoint right Right, which of course d d you know disproportionately affects people of color you know people with other disadvantaged backgrounds disabilities other gender gender identities like there's the socioeconomics uh, follow all of those things exactly and I know I haven't heard do you know of any programs um, and uh, we, we will wrap up after this. Uh, we try to keep it at, uh, at or around an hour. Um, my undergrad institution had a program called, uh, gosh, I can't remember what it was, but basically you could get funding for an unpaid or poorly paid internship that the college had like a fund for. So it was kind of like a scholarship, but basically you would come to them and say, hey, I have this unpaid internship that I really want to do. And they'd be like, great, okay, here's a thousand dollars a month, which, you know, it's, <laughs> it wasn't great money, but for a summer job as a college student, like I was able to pay rent and eat um, while doing, I did an unpaid internship at the Shine Mountain Zoo, thanks to that fund. And I don't, I haven't heard of anything like that elsewhere. I, there, there is different programs to do some of that. The, the one that was probably most similar to that that I'm aware of is something called the McNair Scholars Program, named after Ronald uh -huh. B. McNair, uh, the, the astronaut that passed away in the Challenger, Challenge uh, uh, or disaster. Uh -huh. um, and I, it's, it's, at, it's federally funded through the U.S. Department of Education, and it's at a, over 100 universities. And they essentially, it's kind of what you just described, plus... Um, they they kind of help prepare you for graduate school, and oh, cool. I was yeah you know that that program I I was a member of the, a scholar of that program as an undergraduate student at Southern Oregon University, and I was recruited to Washington State University because of that program, um, and then you know I work with that program, and I'm hoping to bring that program actually here to the University of Montana, uh, but there's there's some other programs like that. There's not enough though. There is definitely yeah, not enough. Definitely not enough. Okay. Well, on that <laughs> uplifting note, um, 
where can people find you online um and if they want to learn more about you stay up to date with your classes and offerings and all all your great frog memes Yes, uh, I, uh, I I I love cumbia. We didn't even get to ta- talk about dancing. Oh my gosh! I, yeah, we'll that's a whole other side. podcast. No, um, I love dancing. <laughs> we still haven't even danced together. I know, is, right? It's COVID abhorrent. and traveling and everything. Um, I uh, I yeah. My, next time I'm in Montana. <laughs> Yeah, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Cumbia Conservationist, Cumbia spelled C-U-M-B-I-A, Conservationist. Uh, Cumbia is my favorite style of music to listen to and to dance to. Um, You can find me on Twitter at uh, Erim Gomez, um, or yeah, at Erim Gomez, um, or my uh, university page. It's pretty easy to find me, E-R-I-M, and then Gomez, G-O-M-E-Z. and I got to give a shout out to anyone that likes fungus. Uh, I get shout out to my very popular and much more influential younger brother, who's a mycologist at Rogue Fungus. Check him out. He has more followers than I do. Ooh. I didn't that's, know this about, about, else about you and your brother. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, you should interview him. He's great. Okay, oh, my done. God. Yeah, He's we'll great. just we'll do a we'll do a tour of the whole Gomez family. We'll come up with a reason to interview your parents. We'll we'll talk to the aunties. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Why not? <laughs> you really should interview um, my brother. He would be cool. I will, Yeah, yeah. Give me his, his info, and uh, we'll get I him will. on. That sounds great. I don't. We don't have any mycologists on. That would be a lot of fun. He's a hobby um, mycologist, but he's a super knowledgeable. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think I think that would be a good a good topic anyway there's a lot of really cool work with dogs and finding fungus i've got a friend who um trained her dog to find mazatakis and she's just like she's considering quitting her job to sell mazatakis to restaurants um because he's finding so many for her um oh that's cool so yeah yeah all right anyway um well thank you again for coming on the show erim and um we will talk again soon and hopefully dance sometime absolutely to some cumbia <laughs> Take care. Thanks so much. Could be as a weak point, but we'll work on it. (laughs) Oh, that's a good thing I'm a teacher. (laughs) Yeah, okay, yeah. Bachata and salsa, I've got you, though. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a bit and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.